Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Michael Frazis. I'm Portfolio Manager at Frazis Capital Partners. Today, I thought I'd give you firstly a very quick overview of what we do. Some of you have heard it before, um, so we'll keep it brief. Then I'll go into a brief update on the portfolio and go through some of the earnings that we've seen. Um, I'll go through what I think will be the next big thing after mRNA in the life sciences. Uh, and then I'll answer some questions. And we've got five or six of them that have already been sent through. Um, but feel free to use that chat to kind of um, put something through and, uh, and I'll answer it on the spot. I will also be recording this and sending out the video and also the audio. Okay, so this is us. Uh, we've netted 27% per annum since inception now. Um, basically, we invest in companies with two characteristics. It's true customer love and explosive growth. And the reason that we do that is so we get the right answer um, as to which companies to invest and really get into them early. You know, it's one thing to invest in, you know, Apple now. How could you invest in Apple 10 years ago or 12 years ago when there's a host of competition, host of competitors um, and many different directions you could go? Those two things, explosive growth Before and true customer love. That, I need to know who's speaking. One second. Uh, those two characteristics, true customer love and explosive growth, also get you the right answer to the highest returning opportunities, which is where there's one company that goes from you know, a small number of users to a very large number of users, um, and typically creating a lot of value in the process. Often the, the traditional tool set, um, the value tool set is very bad at those kinds of companies. Um, because generally they're hiring fast, they're growing fast, they're spending a lot of money building out sales teams and spending on R&D and doing all kinds of stuff, uh, which detracts from cash flow. And by spending that cash flow on growing, they end up in a materially bigger, better, more valuable place. Um, but if you're looking at historical financials and your mental model is that I'm going to do deep analysis on the historical financials, generally you'll ding those companies for that. You'll mark them down, whereas obviously they should be marked up. But focusing on these two things, gets you the right answer. Uh, and it's been pretty successful for us. So, you know, Moderna's done 24 times, Afterpay 31. Um, before I set this fund up, we're in Tesla. Uh, so that's done over 30 times since. So really identified, you know, the top financial company in Australia, um, the best performing life sciences company in the S&P 500, which is Moderna, the leading car auto companies, Carvana and Tesla. Um, we've actually been able to apply this and, and, and not always, but often enough, identify the highest returning opportunities um, in terms of dollar value creation, certainly in the market. And I think that's quite, a, quite interesting because, you know, if you study finance, you generally don't come across this kind of way of looking at things, which is probably why there's such an opportunity, probably why we've had um, a small measure of success lately. Uh, one thing I'll mention is there's a lot of tech funds setting up. There's a few key differentiators. I mean, we, um, we focus on the ultra high growth part of the market. So our companies are all growing, or certainly on average growing well over 100%. They're twice the size now in August as they were, August 21 as they were this time last year. Um, and in many cases, we bought them, you know, years before where they were, they were materially smaller again and have increased multiple times. That's very different to a kind of quality focus where you'll end up with Amazon, MasterCard, Visa, Google, all the companies that everybody owns. And I think that's why we have so little overlap with, you know, the Magellans, the NASDAQ, um, even ARK and Bailey Gifford, our overlap with them is different. And it's because we have this entire framework. It's a philosophy, it's a framework. It, it, it gives us guide of when to buy, when to sell, when to hold, basically by measuring those two things, explosive growth and true customer love. 
um, and it gives us different answers. So we do kind of trade similarly to some of these some of these indices, but it's a very different set of um, companies. And the reason that's obviously relevant is if you're investing with us, you kind of want to know it's something different and it adds to your portfolio. Um, and that's kind of the purpose of this slide. Uh, I'll whistle a few examples of where we use that. So Apple's the obvious one, you know, created about $2 trillion of equity market value, most customer love and captured, you know, the entire profit margin of the industry for many, many years. Um, Tesla's probably a typical one. You know, the short sellers with Tesla would say, I love the car, I drive the car, but I hate the stock. And whenever you hear those two things, you like, you know, there's an opportunity. Um, and again, it's not, people think of Tesla as a massively overvalued thing, but look at the growth profile, you know, 2,000 cars, 50,000 cars, 250,000 cars, 500,000 cars, you know, and that's, that's growing again, even now, like that's 2020 numbers. Um, and this is the profile that we're looking for uh, across the board. Uh, another one we use is zero. So the interesting thing here is zero lost more money in 2016 than 2015. And so I'm trying to highlight that idea that you can lose money and create value. And create value they certainly did. You know, it was one of the top performing stocks, definitely on a risk reward basis in the Australian market um, and went up several times in value. Um, the other one is obviously Afterpay. So you could have paid 60 times sales for Afterpay in 2017 uh, and still done exceptionally well. Um, I think that's quite quite an interesting slide because it really shows why what people worry about and think about is generally not what they should be. You know, it's the user growth that was interesting. It was going from a few hundred thousand to a million, two million, five million, ten million users and onwards. That was the key point. And then every one of those users spending it more and more and more. Um, and credit losses going down and down and down for each co cohort. You know, that they were the key factors. Um, and also, of course, the merchant attraction. And that tripped up a lot of people in the Australian market. Okay, so onto the update. Um, it's a couple of questions already. I'll put them, I'll answer them at the end. So we're about 10% for the calendar year to date. Uh, we're up a lot more in February, so we're still down from the highs. Um, look, there's been really strong performance in the life sciences. And more recently, there's been a big sell-off in China and Southeast Asian technology. Most of the impact of that was actually last month. Um, so we're down 7% last month, and that was almost entirely from a few positions there. Um, and broadly, growth has been flat year to date, though maybe the highest quality companies are starting to push to new heights. Um, there was a huge run up in February uh, in across the growth technology space around the world, a steep sell off. And then there's been a huge dispersion of returns, basically depending on quality and how companies performed since. It does kind of show that, you know, everyone worries about where the market's going next, what values look like. There was a huge lift where everything rose, everything fell, and then you know, we're now six months later, now it depends on who's delivering results. So it is coming back to fundamentals as to how things are trading and performing then, which is good because the fundamentals are, you know, the guide um, to what's going on. And that it's at the heart of everything we do, you know, which companies are growing, which companies are adding users, um, which companies are delivering results. And it's really a mystery for us when the, why things trade the way they do. Generally they report well or they report weekly on those metrics and, and trade accordingly. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the biggest winner lately is Moderna. So forgive me if I'll, I'll talk about a winner because, <laughs> you know, it's a $150 billion company now. You'll see they've got 38 bill, like nearly $40 billion of revenue between now and um, effectively now and the end of next year. And it looks like we're going to need booster shots and COVID is going to be an intense political issue for quite some time. Uh, and that bodes very well for Moderna's prospects. It also bodes very well for their, their pipeline. Um, and I imagine, you know, within a year or two, certainly within two years, 
if you get a COVID booster shot, it'll also come with uh, vaccines for influenza, uh, previous coronaviruses, all kinds of respiratory illnesses at once. Um, so that's quite exciting. And it's there's still an open question mark as to whether their approach will work for cancer. They're gonna, certainly going to sink a lot of money trying to find out, um, which is good. You want companies doing that kind of R&D work. Um, but it'll certainly work for, for possibly even most viruses. You know, they're about to put, about to dose their first uh, patient with a HIV vaccine, which would be fascinating to see the results of that. Um, this chart kind of shows, you know, growth is still largely off its highs, but coming back. So you can see the February advance in all these charts, or most of these charts, and then the steep sell-off. Um, but I tell people our strategy and what we do, everyone, it kind of sounds really easy. And everyone, the conception is, oh, if it's that easy, why doesn't everyone do it? The reason it's hard is because to get those long-term outcomes, we take a lot of short-term risk. So we're fully invested. We don't trade around. We also don't fill the portfolio with, you know, Google and and, and rock solid companies that are, that are great. And I, I firmly believe everyone should invest in those companies. Um, but it's not really what we're trying to do with our fund. There's so many, so many of those little decisions we could have made, which would have um, increased our short-term risk profile, but decreased our overall long-term returns. What we're trying to do is optimize for long-term returns. So if the catch to that is even, you know, the best companies like C went from two, $280 to $200 in six weeks. So it was almost, a, a, I guess, more than a quarter dropped off just like that. And all of a sudden, because we're fully invested, that was across the portfolio. So you can see how there's these huge swings. And to get the returns we've, we've delivered, uh, our, pro our approach is basically to take that short-term risk. Uh, it's very important to understand if you're an investor, just so you're very clear that you know what we're doing. Um, why we're taking that short-term risk and why also we think it will outperform. Because frankly, I don't think you can really game these things. You know, if you, we bought C at, at, at $43 and it's now 300. So if you're trying to trade it short-term, you'd have sold that at 80, 120, 160. Every time it added another turn, you'd reduce it. Um, but the problem is obviously that massively reduces your long-term return while potentially taking just the edge off these big sell-offs. Um, it's an important point. Uh, and just, yeah, on C, this, these are the, the results they just reported. So 159% revenue year on year. Uh, it's pretty strong. You know, e-commerce in that part of the world is 120th the size of what it is in the US. Um, e-commerce is a small portion of, of retail sales and the whole sector is much smaller. And that's the US today. So it's 120th of the size and everything's kind of growing, obviously. So you think about where, these, where a company like this could be in five or 10 years. Um, it's still one of our favorite companies. By a long way. Kavana was interesting. So Kavana posted 198% revenue year on year. We've owned this for a few years now. It's interesting how the really good companies, where there's something special about them, they're really doing something unique, often they accelerate. Often they look like they're slowing down and they accelerate onto new highs. Um, it was a, one of the four fastest companies to ever make the Fortune 500 list. Um, and the chart on the right is kind of interesting because it showed it shows that the trajectory is more important than where you are, like where you're going and the rate that you're getting there. Actually, the rate that you're getting to where you're going is far more important than where you are. So we knew kind of a few years ago that this chart was ugly. You know, your $20,000 car, $2,000 gross profit does not leave you much for, for everything else that you want to spend money on. Um, but clearly going in the right direction. And now two or three years later, we look back and we're doing, you know, $5,000 per car. All of a sudden, this is this is a profit story as well as, as well as a, a revenue and growth story. Um, they got there far faster than anybody expected. I think partly because like we spoke to them at the, at the kind of lows in March last year, as it turned out, 
and VPRL are our controllers. Um, yeah, this could be a good thing because it's forcing us to tighten up belt early and you know get rid of all these excess things and really focus on profitability immediately. Um, and actually, that played out. Um, here are another couple of charts. Again, on the right, on the left, you can see that extraordinary um, explosive growth that we look for. This is the profile we look for across our, our companies. If we see charts like this, generally we're very interested. Like we'll start there because they're clearly delivering. They're clearly doing something special. They still have like something like 1% of the US market, by the way. Still a very, very long way to go. Um, certainly on a revenue basis. And on the right, you can see that it's been crazily volatile. So the, the multiple went from seven and a half to basically one, 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 one and a half. So huge swings there, but immense value creation, and it's now up uh, over 10 times from when we bought it. But the way we got that was through some pretty serious drawdowns. You went from $100 to uh, the 30s you know, in March, and multiple times it lost half its value. So we did take a lot of short-term risk to get that long-term outcome, but that is, that is what this entire fund is about. Um, there's been a huge sell-off in China. Now, we wrote about that a, a few weeks ago. Broadly, as I mentioned, the hit kind of happened to us in July. Uh, things seem to kind of stabilise now. There, there were positive signs from Chinese Communist Party leaders, um, or certainly leaders of the regulatory uh, institutions. They've also come out a few days ago and said that they're going to investigate auditing. So the US bug there is that there's US auditing standards. They're listing in the US, taking US capital, but they're not letting the US audit firms audit the firms in China. And China's starting to say that they'll actually um, collaborate more on that. So it's kind of a supportive thing. You know, in the past, they flat, flatly uh, rejected the, even the idea. So you can see there is a change in sentiment. That's not, that's consistent with them trying to stabilize and actually seeing this as long-term. You know, if they were really wanted to throw a spanner in the works, that's not something you would see coming out from them. Um, and you can also see that the risk reward has changed. So at the peak, you had a lot of risk that the, the regulatory regime would change um, and minimal reward because values were so high. Now you have paradoxically lower risk because the party leaders have actually fired their bullets. The worst case scenario, not the worst case scenario, one of the worst case scenarios um, has actually happened. It's wiped off a huge amount of value you know, across the Chinese tech. It's, it's more than 50%. Um, but now there's a lot more reward as well. So you can see the risk reward is skewed from being totally one way to totally the other way. Uh, a lot of people ask questions about this. So I'm just kind of addressing some of it now. Um, you can also see that you know, in a value perspective, these metrics are very cheap. You got a $400 billion company with 30 billion of EBITDA. Now, the, probably the scariest thing that happened, which caused a bit of shakiness last week in China, was that Tencent offered to effectively donate to social aims of China, an amount that was roughly equivalent to the last quarterly profit. And that scared everybody. Because that is like, wow, if you even make a profit in China uh, and you feel obligated to donate it, that's obviously not ideal. Um, I think somebody on Twitter said it best. They said, I'll draw the line if my capital is being used you know, for socialist aims in China, which is fair. I mean, if you're a shareholder, that's not really what you're doing. Again, if you look at the if you look deeply, it's not as bad as it looks. I mean, it's it's not a one-off for that quarter. It's it's an amount that can then be spent. It's like a high-figure amount can then be spent, you know, in a long period of time. Companies like Alibaba and Tencent should be doing things like that. Um, it probably does help them long-term as well. Um, but really, that was there's no way around it. That was somewhat concerning, and we just have to to wait and see if that's the beginning or the end. Um, my view is there is 
the statements that are now being made by Chinese state media, you know, very supportive of the right of companies to list wherever they want, um, dealing with some of these audit issues from the US. To me, you've got to read, you, the Chinese will probably do what they say they'll do. And, you know, when they're going into this, we didn't foresee it. Um, sadly, we didn't see the signal in the noise, but they did actually say they were going to do all these things. And then they did it. And now they're saying they'll support markets and they respect the right of these companies to choose where to list. Um, so kind of expect them to do the same thing. And again, you know, we don't own Alibaba, but the risk reward has just changed from here. Um, Tencent has been similarly hurt. But again, you can see, you know, it's much cheaper than it's been. If anything, it was probably too expensive at the peak as well. Um, and Fuji, this was actually one of our biggest positions. This is what really hurt us. So you can see at the beginning of July, I was trading at, I think it was 160, 170, and then all the way back down, came all the way back down to 85. So roughly halved in value. That was a large position for us. And that was a big detractor. Um, the reason we like it is it went from, you know, 100 in three years from 100 mil revenue to a billion. Uh, it's profitable. In its latest results, they grew at over 300%. Um, they're tiny, tiny, they have several hundred thousand users, you know, 14, 15 million, sorry, paying users, 14, 15 million non-paying users. Um, it's a Hong Kong company. We think it's probably one of the best places to play a rebound. Um, so we're going to hold. We're not going crazy. We're not taking huge additional positions. Um, and so far, you know, this month, despite these companies actually continuing to fall, we've generated profit on a portfolio basis, um, which gives you some kind of indication that, that the impact of these will be more muted going forward, if not just because they're much smaller positions. Um, let me check in on the questions. Uh, okay, there was a Chinese one. What is your take on Chinese positions such as Alibaba and Tencent? I think I gave some views then. Do you feel there are long-term implications for shareholders with lower returns in future with these new regulations from China? Broadly, I think multiples will consistently be lower. Um, I think that multiple changes probably happened. I think the generation of people that just got hit then are not going to like dive back, you know, fully. This is one of those cases like March 2020 where things fall and then immediately rebound. Um, the companies will have to prove it. The regulators will have to be sta stabilised things. Um, the interesting thing about this is it was very much regulatory driven, so it can also be cured regulatory. But again, we're not going back to the, the heights for some time. What you could see is at some point, it may even happen, these companies do put in a low. Regulators go from being hyper-aggressive they, they come out with the regulation. They've already issued the draft regulation. So already the uncertainty is starting to lift. Um, and then you can see them slowly start to grind up. And then one to two years of grinding up, then confidence uh, would return. But really, I do think it's it's materially lower. That it's, it's consistently lower valuations from here. Um, and many of these moves will in result in increased competition, which will most certainly hit long-term returns. Um, so this, this, is an, this is not an irrational sell-off. You know, values did have to come down a lot um, on the basis of all of this. But the question of how much is that behind is, is an open one. You know, from now on, if, if values don't continue collapsing anymore, then your return will be equal to effectively the performance of the company, the underlying performance. And that would be pretty good for all these companies. So it's mixed, but weirdly, you're, if things are most dangerous before the crash. Um, they're kind of safest after, though you feel safest when everything's been grinding up and every values are high, and you feel like things are most dangerous when everything's low um, and whipping around. It's actually the, the opposite. So they're kind of some expanded views on that. Um, 
I showed these charts in May and they're really perceptive because they kind of showed that how far things had fallen. Um, you can still see there's still been a 38% drop in multiple growth rates still high. Some of these need to be updated with latest results. Um, and these companies are all up 5% flat on the year, but down 24%. Um, so portfolio is down a little bit better than that, but it's probably down a similar amount from the peak. So I put the same chart here on software because it's also interesting. So you can see that almost a third, a quarter to a third has been locked off the multiples of software. Um, growth has been pretty good, but the year-to-date price across the board is 3%, even though there's been, again, wide dispersion amongst the really high-quality companies and those that aren't. And you can also see that something like Snowflake, you know, minus 5% year-to-date. So what happens when a company has an EV sales of 138? Um, it doesn't have to crash. It can go sideways. It's basically what's happened. And a year later, it's delivered on the growth. It's gone from 133 to like 67 times sales. Um, it'll probably go sideways for another year, it'll be 30 times sales, and then maybe even another year after that. That's kind of the view on those highs. So we don't, we don't own that, even though obviously it's an amazing company. Uh, I said I'd talk about the next big thing. So how are we doing for time? Probably got enough time. So there's a new class of molecules that I think are actually super exciting. So these are protein degraders. So the way most, most things work, most drugs work, is there'll be like an, an active side of an enzyme that does whatever function it is um, that's relevant. And the way drugs will work is by basically throwing a little spanner that's perfectly sized and perfectly shaped for that active site, and then you'll block it. Um, it's an issue because your body uses the same receptors all over the place for different things. So, you, or, so small molecule drugs, these small spanners often throw spanners in the works of all kinds of different mechanisms, um, which is how you get so many side effects with small molecule drugs. Um, it's also, you need a lot of it. So you need for every molecule you want to inhibit, it's like a competitive inhibition. So you've got like the spanner trying to stop it and then you've got whatever the actual target is and you need to have a lot of it in the right spot consistently. So you need high doses and consistent doses. You need to be taking pills every day or, or consistent injections. Um, and then there's lots of the new kind of medicines, the information medicines, you know, mRNA, CRISPR, zinc fingers, all the genetic gene-based DNA, RNA medicines. Um, they're very difficult to use as well. And they only target certain tissues. Now what happens in your body is your body actually has a way of destroying certain proteins. Um, it's called the ubiquitin protein because basically proteins own pathway, because basically uh, whoever found it, you know, it was ubiquitous in the body, it was in, it was in every cell um, because it's used for this. Basically there's these, um, E3 ligase is basically an enzyme that will tag onto a protein uh, and then a series of, of ubiquitin molecules will just attach, the proteins will attach to it and eventually that will mark it for destruction. So once you tag something, it will get destroyed. And so the idea here is obviously why don't we tag, get like kind of a linker molecule or a glue, there's kind of two, you can link one to the relevant protein you want destroyed that's causing disease, you can link the other to this pathway um, this E3 ligase, and then the, pro the body will just destroy it. And that's exactly what, what the idea is. And there's been some precedent for this. So thalidomide, which was that awful kind of drug that was given, it's not awful, it was awful that it was given to pregnant women, caused a lot of deformities, um, but later became a very effective cancer drug, worked al along this pathway. Um, people developed the drug before they knew how, long before they knew how it worked. Um, but it turns out we've actually had one of these degraders in, in the clinic for a long time. Um, there's a lot of advantages. So only a small number of proteins that cause disease are druggable because it's very hard. Not all of them have some neat little active site that you can just target. Um, and often they'll have other roles, like they'll be scaffolding proteins, they'll, they'll do certain things. 
um, that aren't related to like one specific site. Technically, with this pathway, you could find a way to link these 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 ligases to any part of the molecule. It doesn't have to be the, the active site. So then it can be targeted for destruction. So it really opens up a whole new field of druggable proteins and druggable pathways. Um, the second point is there's that idea of that one-to-one -one ratio that you need with the target protein. These things are catalytic, so you just need a little bit. Um, it's kind of an irony because you know enzymes catalytic, but inhibiting enzymes is not. Weirdly, this would be like a, inhibiting drugs protein, or destroying proteins in this way is catalytic. You just need a small amount of linker that can then destroy one, destroy the next one, destroy the next one. Um, it's also likely to be, it, it can also be taken orally. So it doesn't need to be injected. Um, CRISPR, gene editing, all those things, they're really difficult treatments at the moment. You basically have to use chemotherapy to wipe people's bone marrow cells, for example, in one way of doing it, and then take their cells, engineer them, put them back. It's extremely difficult, complicated process. This is, these, these are oral drugs. Um, yeah. Uh, these are some photos of how it works. So you can see in this case, you've got, how do I move this? Yeah, using the bottom line, which I think is a better picture, you've got this E3 ligase, you've got a target protein. The target protein attaches to um, the ligase and then is, gets all these ubiquitous molecules that just kind of string along it, and then it's destroyed in the proteasome. Uh, and this is another one, another way of looking at it. Again, you can see the protein of interest. Uh, you can see the link, the link up, which is this green thing, um, and you can change it. So once you've got something that targets particular E3 ligase, you can change the other end of the link to target a, a particular protein. And that's the specificity that's uh, of so interest. Um, Firstly, man was done a couple of years ago, so very recent, and there's about 15 in the clinic. Many of these companies are listed, and two of them we have small positions in. Um, don't go crazy on any of these because they're still relatively early. And increasingly now, this is becoming recognized. So I wouldn't say you're getting in super early at the moment. Um, Kimura is one of, one of the ones we've invested in. So they're targeting um, IRAC4 degradation, which is using inflammation. So most like dermatitis and these are autoimmune diseases. So most of these companies are going for cancer assets for oncology, but this one is not. And that's particularly interesting. The biggest the leading company is actually our Venus at the moment. And they've had a pretty steep run up in the price. Pfizer put in a ton of money at, at $101 a share and it's 85 bucks a share now. So if you get in now, you're getting a discount, 20% discount to what Pfizer put money in. Um, and actually all these companies have very high quality uh, collaborators, you know, Sanofi and, and Pfizer and, and others. So it's one of the things you look for in, in life sciences is what kind of, what's the caliber of partner that a particular company can attract. It's really one of the best indications because honestly they have the expertise and they really know what can sell. Like they, the, the big pharmaceutical companies know which companies they'll buy, which companies they can market, where the commercial opportunities are. Um, it's a level of due diligence from like internal industry due diligence. Um, it's very comforting to know that you really want to be on the right side of that. You want to be the companies invested in the companies that the Pfizer's of the world are saying yes to, um, not no to. Ah, and this is like a kind of slightly better picture. So you can see the Protac, this is our Venus. They've called it Protac, which has annoyed everybody else because nobody else can call it Protac now. Um, but basically you've got this E3 ligase, you've got a green target protein. If you link it to the ligase, with the Protac, um, it, all these ubiquitins come on it, which targets it for destruction, and then the proteasome destroys it. 
And yeah, I guess this is another summary of the advantages. So you can see here the advantages of these protein degraders versus small molecules and also gene-based medicine, which is still a long way to go. You know, I know CRISPR is red hot and we get asked about it all the time. Still a long way to go for all those medicines. And the ones that were most advan advanced weren't actually CRISPR that were, um, you know, using lentiviruses and other ways of, of genetically transforming, uh, of genetic engineering. Uh, a lot of those trials have been stopped recently. Um, for health reasons, it's very difficult. Lots of off-target effects, lots of unpredictable things happen. Uh, now I will answer some questions. So I was asked what would happen if the 10-year bond shot up. So basically got up to 2% earlier in the year um, and it caused a sell-off in growth and then growth recovered. Partly because there was another round of coronavirus, which, which and, and broadly there was a big slowdown. There's been a big slowdown across the board, you know, whether it's Chinese, Chinese industry or, or even in the US. Um, and that's that that the bond yields actually fell long before the data came out. It's amazing how predictive they can be at these kinds of things. Um, this idea would they be automatically 30% less? If it happened overnight, you would get a big sell-off. Yeah, if it went up 100 basis points. You've got to remember the companies themselves are changing, particularly our companies, so they're growing. So that's why I would say that the price doesn't drop 30%, the multiples could. You know, the multiples for our companies have already done that this year. We're still up 10%. So there is a trade-off between what the company's doing, what the multiple's doing, and then what the yield is doing. I'd say yields are very effective at, at predicting short-term movements of multiples um, and long-term movements. But over more than two, three years, it's what the company does. You know, somebody was asking me a question about oh, what do you think about the next few years. There'll be companies started today that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars in five years' time. I can promise you that. Maybe not right today, possibly, but certainly this year, that will be worth a fortune. The reason for that is they don't exist now and they'll have heaps of users and generate serious revenues and gross profits in a few years' time. Um, they'll be worth something, a lot more now than they are today. Uh, and that will happen irrespective of the economic cycle. And that's kind of what we're looking for. I think these, I think economic cycle is such a red herring and it gets you out of amazing companies um, at the wrong time. Uh, this is a good question that we often get. How can you follow love to the drugstore? I think it's there's some instances where you can do it. So your users are the doctors and clinicians. So what are the clinicians excited about? What are the researchers excited about? Um, a lot of companies that are listed, companies aren't it's just another drug targeting this or that. You know, there's a lot of companies that will fit that. Oh, this is just another one of these companies that is going for this indication. There's 30 others. Um, then there'll be things like protein degraders that people actually get really excited about. So there is a sense of customer love there. But really, I'd say it's more the explosive growth part, which is the data. So the explosive, the reason explosive growth is so effective is because it gives you data, it gives you evidence that something is growing, that people are spending more and more, more and more dollars on a particular product or service. And that gives you an indication of the quality of the product. And um, the fact that it's winning wallet share is more important than your opinion on it, or certainly our opinion on it. Um, and so we take a similar approach to biotech, only we really want to see data. So we don't want to predict what's going to happen and what's going to work. We want to see that it has worked and then extrapolate that out. Kind of like we do with Carvana when it was growing at 100%, it had 0. whatever percent, 0.4% of the, of the market and it was losing money, but margins were going up. You kind of want that where it's kind of done, it's done, it had exceptional results in um, early stage trials and, and you expect that to continue. And you have to be, I think in life sciences, you have to be genuinely convinced um, you don't do things, we don't do scatter guns, we don't go, it could work, or if it works, we'll make 30 times our money. 
No, you have to be convinced deep down that it works, um, that it will succeed and go for that 100% hit rate. Um, otherwise things just don't work out. Uh, this is that slide for the gingy pans I thought was quite interesting. There's that idea of no opinions. What is your view on, I'll just answer one that's come through. What is your view on the metaverse? Recent IPOs. I kind of hate it when things get too fashionable. I feel like metaverse was cool a couple of years ago and now everyone's talking about it. Um, Roblox is a position of ours. We think it, it is very cool. We think it's, it's a great company. Um, kids obsess about it. It's their own little kind of universe in there. You can create a character that then can play multiple games. Very easy monetization with Robux, kind of the currency of that. Um, I saw some crazy company the other day that is a private company. It's like a crypto mine, a, a cryptocurrency-based game. And it's fascinating. Do you think about the um, think about uh, World of Warcraft, where and you may or may not be aware of this, but in World of Warcraft, you can either go and spend a lot of time building up a character, or you can pay somebody in China to give you a suit of armor that's been effectively made basically through significant um, man hours involved. Uh, cryptocurrency is just perfect for that kind of thing. So you can set that game up with all that underlying stuff, and then there's an easy way for monetization. So this game is like taken off in the Philippines. They've had something like 70 million of revenue in the last month. Um, again, when it comes back to these opportunities, it's it's these are companies that didn't exist. This company didn't exist a year ago, and it's already got significant revenue. There'll always be opportunity in this world of ours today. Uh, maybe not in medieval times, but in in the, on the in the world today that we're also lucky to live in. There'll always be these companies coming out of nowhere and growing extremely fast. And the metaverse, I think, is definitely something we'll um, see more of. I know Facebook's gone big on it. It's probably got people excited about their stock. They, they did show this. They showed this awful, awful example of the metaverse. What it was like eight people around a boardroom with little characters. Like that's like dystopian. Like the last thing you want is a corporate dystopia where we disappear into the metaverse and we're sitting in boardrooms as cartoon characters. Um, I don't think that's super exciting, but we will see. There's no doubt we'll see more of it. Um, Roblox is probably the highest quality way to play it, other than maybe perhaps Facebook itself. Um, but Facebook obviously comes with other things. Uh, and actually, I think if you see any private opportunities, they'll also be interesting, like unlisted companies. Where do we go next? Some biotech or medical device companies have had a slow growth period in the past year or so. Any thoughts on non-COVID hospital procedures or treatments around the world returning? So that's kind of one of the one of the disadvantages of the approach to lockdown was the way it just shut down. It was just like a complete focus of all attention, dollars, energy on one particular issue. Um, and people are so bad at that second, third, fourth order effect, um, particularly in politics, if it's a political issue. Um, even if you know this second, third, fourth order effect, it pays for a politician to focus only on the one thing that people matter. Um, and then you can create extraordinary amounts of political profit by doing that, as you can see from the state premiers um, in Australia. So do you have any thoughts on when they'll return? Hard to tell, it's almost a political thing. Um, this kind of Delta variant obviously put us, put everybody back, you know, everything's kind of opening up, recovering, um, people returning to hospital. Now that has changed. Um, so I'm unsure. What I would recommend is if you can, don't avoid any of your usual testing that you'll get. Um, because one of the things that may happen now is people kind of put off their kind of cancer screening tests. And then over the next one, two, three years, we'll get, we'll pay the toll of that. Um, again, short-term focus on, on one particular issue, long-term, we'll have a long-term cost in other areas. Um, so I'm unsure, but hopefully 
sanity prevails and, and, and people are able to get their treatment for things that aren't life-threatening. Uh, what are thoughts on Redbubble after reporting? I thought this result was rock solid. Um, and again, this is what we like. So Red, everyone's like, oh, Redbubble's like changing. And, you know, there's 700 million. I think like last year, there's something like 50 mil, that kind of, of just face masks alone. So there's a big question over how much would they go down. And here you go, you know, it's tough comp from last year, 48% year on year, uh, 99 million of cash. Uh, if you look at their metrics, they're trading at 1.9 times sales. I mean, that's forward sales, but 1.9 times. Um, and you can see here that bigger rip up. I think we got in around $3. So we haven't done great here. It's a bit over four. Um, went all the way to six, back down. What do we do? Well, we just check, wait for the results to come in. Results good, we'll hold. Um, and actually we bought a little down here. Um, yeah, people ask us, people talk about valuations and growth. This is an example of a company that has grown, that's growing very fast um, and trades on 1.9 times sales and is profitable. So there are these opportunities. There's a ton of these kinds of opportunities. Um, yeah, I think that's that's probably the main takeaway there. There's still plenty of opportunities about. Okay, that is all of the uh, that is all the set questions. Is any part of the fund allocated to agritech? Um, we actually own one company in the US. I'm not sure if it's agritech. It's agriculture related. Uh, it's like a it's like a stores focused on hydroponic growers, um, and the reason it's interesting is because it's a small company. It's growing at um, I think top line 160, percent but it is a, it's doing part of that is acquisition. Um, but each store is growing at 60. percent So if you ever looked at a retail company um, and you see that like the store additions, then like for like sales growth, it's five or six percent. This company is 60. percent It's already up, you know, two and a half times from when we bought it. Um, and is off and is significantly off, you know, along with all these growth stocks. But that like for like we think is is phenomenal and will continue. Um, that's basically the only agri-tech company that we think, and it's more, it's kind of adjacent to agri-tech. What's your view on the BAE structure for some of the Chinese tech positions? Um, look, I think I think the regulators are given some level of clarity now. The fact that they're the fact that they're they're specifically bringing in regulations around what companies can list in the US means they are formally acknowledging them. Um, and, you know, like I said, the, the latest is the editorials from the, the state papers say that they support the right of Chinese companies to list wherever they want. Um, and they seem pretty serious about that. And they also need it. They want the capital. These are great structures for them. They need the capital in. Um, it does leave, Pinduoduo is like a 1.3% position for us. We're going to wait until they report. Um, I think the issue with them is they're going to have to cut back spending. You know, if, in a world where they're trading at at reasonable values without all these crazy political discounts, um, you can run losses and then just tap in your hundred billion dollar company, just tap the market, get another extra five billion dollar cash. Um, that's very effective. In this world where there's all these questions around it, I don't think anyone's going to be able to tap US investors for cash. Um, they're almost all going to have to dual list or relist in Hong Kong. Um, and all these, all the loss-making companies that have been so, have achieved some phenomenal things, but have kind of been willing to, to lose money to do that. Um, they're gonna have to rethink that. They're gonna have to be a little bit more independent. Um, so that's like a bit of a read-through on Pinduoduo. They're also one of the big losers in the sense that, or they could be one of the big losers in the sense that opening up competition, um, they had a favored status of Tencent, which is now probably gone. What do you think about the recent issues being raised in the US with regards to Moderna and heart inflammation? 
seems like there's definitely a thing. It seems to be affecting young men. Um, my opinion is as good as anyone else's, but you know, you can read the papers and, and see the numbers. It's very low. Um, most of them seem to kind of resolve. Uh, Moderna has, seems to have much less breakthrough cases than Pfizer. Um, the weirdly, what you really want is, other than getting the disease itself, which actually you don't want, that, that will give you the best immunity. There's, there may be some new vaccines coming out that will be more effective. For example, inactivated whole virus vaccines. Um, there's companies putting those to the clinic. They will work better than all of them um, and have been around for a long time. But those, those kinds of side effects, you know, there's one in a million, one in 500,000. It's pretty hard to think. It's, there's, still, there's still some of the safest things around in pharmaceuticals. And I think especially in Australia, I, say, I think Australia, it's all changed in the sense that, you know, maybe a few months ago, you could feel justified as in, you know, maybe, maybe towards the end of it, and that is the last wave and, and Australia will just sail through, but I don't think it will. You know, there's almost a thousand cases a day now. Um, there's a good chance we'll get it better off having that vaccine done. I've had it, by the way. Um, it is reported that Tesla has met a lot of leg legislative restrictions and local competitions in China. So optimistic of the company's outlook and why. Yeah, we are. I mean, I should put that chart here. I put in my last note. Um, auto sales are still like mid-single digits of, of total sales. So you're talking about many parts of the world, three, four, five percent, including China. I think China was seven percent. Um, China is always going to go for their, is always going to move electric for pollution reasons and also favor local companies um, like Neo, Xpeng, and Li, um, which and BYD, which can be expected to get the lion's share. Um, it's no surprise to me. They've also set up the Tesla factory in China. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of people that work there that are now working for um, local competitors. Um, but the play isn't that. The play is that the world moves to somewhere like Norway. So Norway, most cars are electric. So you can actually get to 70, 80% penetration, not five, six, seven percent. Um, I think Australia is like less than half that again. Uh, so there's a huge runway ahead for electric vehicles. Now, I don't think Tesla's like one of our best positions. I think, you know, we, we hold it. Um, that value uplift that it just got, you know, I guess a year ago, uh, that was so good for Kathy Wood and some of the long-term holders, um, that won't happen again over a short period of time. Um, if anything, you know, multiples will slowly come down as they growth is will probably, I think it's 40% now, will maintain 30, 40, 50%. Um, it'll be a high returning company, but it's not going to have that, you're not going to get that 10x in six months again, whatever it was. You know, I think that was that was unusual and went from extremely cheap, like way too cheap, like 15 times EBITDA to too expensive to now somewhere in the middle. Um, another question, is Square a long-term hold? What are the key metrics current Alphabet holders should be watching as it relates to Square? Look, I think um, Square's been one of our favorite companies. They've been very clear, very good in investor relations actually, very clear how the sales and marketing spend results in huge gross profit um, gains. And so their return on investment is as high or higher than basically um, anyone else, certainly anyone that anyone will disclose in the listed market. Um, and with Afterpay, they've now got a really compelling, out of all of them, they have the most, both of them focus on both sides of the market, had extremely attractive offer, offers to both sides of the market. So they did the two of them best, so merchant and customer. You need both of them if you want to do what everybody's trying to do, which is actually get the payments to run on your own network. Um, I noticed there's a bit of a weakness in Visa and MasterCard. Long-term, those companies actually are under pressure by these companies. 
Um, the metrics you should be watching for are user growth, revenue per user, gross profit per user, gross profit return on, on marketing spend. Um, but those things are really, really high at the moment. They could come down a lot and it could still be one of the top returning um, stocks in a portfolio. So we're sitting at about, you know, 6%, 5 6% in square. I think that's about right. Um, this is definitely one of the ones we'll add if we get the chance. That's for sure. Um, that looks like it. Oh, somebody's been sending messages in chat. Um, sentiment towards Chinese companies, probably address that. Uh, I think it'll be regulatory driven. The more the regulators kind of fire their bullets, get the new regulations behind them, valuations reset, and then support the market, that's probably the way out. September is seasonally weak for US stocks to take into consideration. Uh, not really, these things are red headings. I think um, you don't really want to be trading in and out of things because it's September or August, um, even if you know, selling May and go away generally does work. Drug development requires an understanding of this stuff. How deep into the project design development is that? Uh, look, the early stage. Um, so far, it looks very specific, very selective. Um, and it's got backing of, of, of leading people in the industry, leading industry participants like Pfizer. Um, it should also work, like it just should work. This is, it's an existing pathway. Um, you're just connecting something to that, a very well-known, well-researched well pathway. Um, there shouldn't be specific off-target effects if you design the linker correctly. Well, you will get off-target effect to the, the blues. So if you're just arbitrarily sticking things with certain surfaces to that pathway, then there'll be much more off-target effects, I expect. But yes, this is early. It's very early, very exciting. Um, early data. So for example, in, in, in one of those in that anti-autoimmune disease by Chimera in their treatment, they cleared something like 85% of the proteins that they're targeting. Um, and that's pretty incredible for like an oral medicine, 85% RX4 degradation. It'll certainly be more specific, specific than uh, most small molecule drugs. The R&D behind ultragenic stalling. Um, I think they're a bit of a I don't, I don't know if they're stalling. I think it's, I think, I think Ultragenics just got caught up in a wave of speculative enthusiasm for that kind of thing. And that's now reversed. Um, it seems to have stabilized. There's nothing in the latest results or data to suggest that anything's changed or anything's particularly wrong. Where would you go to to get advice and new ideas from niche scientific fields? Uh, I'll just read stat and endpoints. There's a few industry magazines. Um, online magazines that will generally cover everything. So if you're really interested in the space, that is by far the best place to start. I think of Ordinate. Uh, I never got into Ordinate. I think they never really had the growth every time I looked at it. Um, I don't know enough to comment. Does the fund have exposure to cryptocurrency or related services? We do actually have a small amount in crypto equities, so businesses around crypto. And I think I think that's the most exciting part. For example, this company that's just getting tens of millions of dollars of revenue a few months after shortly after launch, you know, the business, the businesses can have that crazy exponential growth. Um, but kind of like, kind of like Tesla, you won't, what, what, what we saw in Bitcoin, I don't think you'll see again. I don't think it's gonna go from 2 trillion to 200 trillion. You know, that's like roughly the value of all assets. You know, I don't think that's gonna happen again. I think that move is, is gone. Um, 
nice comments. Latest AWS updates. Look, I think AWS will be a very strong competitor to Snowflake. I think Snowflake's multiple will compress significantly, at least 50%. Uh, we are invested in autoimmune diseases. So we are invested in Chimera. Um, I think autoimmune is huge. There's a lot of work to be done in that space. They're huge conditions that affect almost everybody eventually um, as we age and yeah, enormous market opportunities. Okay, I think that's probably it. I don't really have a view on Visio. I'm not sure what that is, um, but feel free to send me an email. Um, and we still have quite a few participants. Let me just check for one more question. Nasal sprays. Uh, I think it's interesting. I just think these are all a while away. Um, there's a couple of companies going for nasal sprays, things like coronavirus. They seem to make sense, but I don't have a, I don't have serious conviction either way. Um, but it's reminded to take another look at them. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, I'll wrap up there. I'll probably, I'll, assuming the recording worked, I will post this on on YouTube and send it around. And feel free to send through any questions for the next one. Try and do this every every couple of weeks or so. Um, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>